0: You are listening to Matter of Theology, a podcast production that deals with church and cultural issues from a biblical standpoint. We stand firm on the sufficiency of scripture, hitting every topic with an open Bible and the boldness to say things that others are afraid to. And now, here's the host of Matter of Theology, Chris Huff. hey everybody what's going on welcome to matter of theology i hope that you are all doing very 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 well um thank you so much for tuning in uh today it is just me i'm sorry for that (laughs) that is uh, I know a, a lot of you guys constantly give us some fantastic feedback about how you love the, um, the, the, the camaraderie, the, uh, the chemistry that my brother Drew and I have together, and we love doing the podcast together, and there will be some episodes coming in the future um, where that is the case. So um, there is so much going on right now in the world from, um, from a cultural, political, and, and ecclesiological Ecclesiastical—I don't even know how do you say that—a church standpoint. How about that? How do you like them apples? Um, so, uh, so, so there's a lot that um, that is on. Our hearts to have conversations about, um, and so, Lord willing, uh, we will be doing that soon. So, um, so, and I know you know we say this on every episode, but we just want to make sure you guys know where to find us and where to find our content, and um, and also where to check out other fantastic uh, Christian podcasts. And of course, we're a part of the Christian podcast community, uh, which is a part of Striving for Eternity Ministries. Mr. Andrew Rappaport, um, and we are thankful uh, to. Be be a part of that community and that ministry and love uh what the lord is doing in and through that. So um so that being said um you know we're going to get right into right into this. It's uh it's a it's an interesting time. And 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 there's a word that I want to kick us off with. And that's the word truth. We live in a pro- post-truth world and time. We live in a time we're, we're caring about and wanting to be classified as people of truth is considered archaic. Conscience is, is considered to be outdated. Society has clearly rejected all notions of truth. I mean, when you can have a sitting US president nominate a man who thinks he's a woman for assistant health secretary, and then he's confirmed for the role, and then society doesn't have a problem with that. Uh, or the or the politics they're wanting to sign into law, I mean, it just highlights how depraved we are, and it also highlights the the wrath of God in his uh, in, in 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 his removal of favor in, uh, in his giving over, as Romans chapter one would state, um, giving over of of those societies, and ours is one of them giving over uh, that, that society to the direction they want to go. You know, the work of the enemy the work of the devil began back in Genesis chapter three with the casting of doubt on the validity of God's word. And, and that work is charging forward like a lion, seeking to devour, seeking to kill and steal and destroy. You know, what, what we see in Genesis chapter three is a strategic and systematic attack on truth. And he is, the enemy is, what what theologians have rightly called a master deceiver. And and notice, if you will, how it begins. You know, Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He cornered her using this conniving ploy. He isolated Eve from her husband and initiated an attack on the very veracity of the words of God Almighty. As Dr. Stephen J. Lawson has so masterfully stated, quote, where God has put a period, Satan sought to put a question mark period, close quote. And he's doing the very same thing today. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us in in, in chapter one um, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing. Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes says, already it has existed which were before us. There's nothing new. The enemy's tactic is exactly the same. Seeking to plant seeds of doubt and confusion in the minds and the hearts of those in this world. And we see that, right? We see Paul referencing, referencing the blind eyes, the veiled eyes uh, that that we find in Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four. Um, which, by the way, side note here: I'll, anything that I read in this episode of matter of theology that's the new testament psalms or proverbs will be read from the legacy standard bible um if you do not have a copy of that you can read it online or you can go to 316publishing.com and order your own copy no they are not sponsoring this podcast but i love those guys and have purchased multiple bibles from them Um, and this translation is absolutely incredible anyway Moving on, talking about the, the, the blinders and the veil, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing and in, in, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And, and, and what's what's interesting about this, is we need not think of this mentality um, as just, quote-unquote, in the world. It has made its way into the lives and into uh, the assemblies of those who would profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There has been and there continues to be a war on truth. And this war has been and is being perpetuated by those inside the church as well. And much like the early church fathers, the Reformers and the Puritans, we yet again find ourselves in a in, in, in just a knock-down, drag-out battle for the truth. And ultimately, that truth being centered, in this episode anyway, as far as what we're going to talk about in the doctrine of the church and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Horatius Bonar said this, quote, the world has absorbed the church, and the church is content to have it so, period, close quote. This is astonishing and frustrating and very heartbreaking. You know, the church is called to be, as, as Paul wrote to his young son in the faith in First Timothy, the church is called to be uh, the, the, the pillar and the support of the truth. And Dr. Stephen Lawson again says this in his book, The Moment of Truth, quote, God has entrusted the truth of the church, which is to proclaim it, protect it. The church is to hold up the truth before a watching world, period, close quote. So this is one of the, the, the first things that is to describe what and, 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 and who the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is is a, a pillar a support a buttress of the truth dr josh bice recently stated in an article that he wrote for g3 ministries entitled the power of storytelling he said this quote as christians we are to be people who are committed to the truth we are to we are people of light and we must be committed to the light As we communicate in sermon or story, we must point people to the truth in order that people will be led to make decisions that are based on facts rather than something less than the truth. Brethren, this is how it should be. One of the problems is this. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, even leaders, especially some leaders, are in the interest of, of, of speaking out of both sides of their mouths, attempting to serve two masters. And in doing so, they've invited in pragmatic, world pleasing ideologies that have cheapened and, dare I say, given us a truly adulterated and unimportant view of Christ's bride. Again, brethren, this should not be so back to Stephen Lawson. And and, and as you guys know, we love Dr. Lawson. Again, in the book, the moment of truth, he said this quote, as the moon comes between the sun and the earth causes causing an eclipse and leaving the planet in darkness. We are witnessing in these days, the obstruction of the truth of God in vastly larger ways. The veiling of the word of God is occurring in the church to an alarming extent. The brilliant splendor of the truth of scripture is being concealed in the church today by humanistic wisdom and worldly entertainment. Tragically, this blockage is occurring in the very place where the truth ought to shine the brightest in this present hour. Dr. Lawson says the message of scripture is being shrouded and withheld from the people in the pews. Whenever this occurs, Ichabod is written over the front door of the church and of course, Ichabod means the glory of the Lord has departed. If the church is to recover her mission in the world, the truth of God must be front and center again. And she must return to being a lamp, the lampstand she was intended by God to be. In the church, if the church is to walk in the light and reflect the glory of God, she must reclaim the truth in every area. Continuing along this train of thought, as far as truth being uh, be, being being shunned away from and turned away from, uh, what we're seeing and a, a fruit and a result of this is is this this anemic view of who the church is, and this this normative this overly normative approach to the sufficiency of Scripture. In in his sermon on February fourteenth, two thousand twenty-one, Pastor James Coates, he's the lead pastor and elder at Grace Life uh, in Edmonton, uh, at Grace Life Edmonton in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He stated this in his sermon entitled "Directing Government to Its Duty," where he so wonderfully and masterfully, and I use that word on purpose, um, uh, exposited Romans thirteen for us, for his church, and for anyone who would listen. I would challenge you to go look it up and listen to it. But Dr. Coates said this, quote, I think we can say this, that this particular time in history has exposed some deficiencies in the broader evangelical church. For one, it has exposed a deficient ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the doctrines of the church. This covers everything from what the church is to the essential elements of worship. And what's apparent, at least to me, and he's not alone, Dr. Coates, you're not alone, brother. It is... uh, it's what's, let me start that sentence again. And what's apparent, at least to me, is that the church today has a very low ecclesiology. Where virtual church is not only fine; it's a wonderful evolution of things. And related to that is number two, a deficient approach to Scripture. And and to our brother, we say Amen and write on. And side note here: this is this is free. This is not in my notes. But today is April seventh, two thousand twenty-one. And this morning, I awoke um, to the news that Dr. Coates and 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 the uh, the, the family there uh, at, at Grace Life um, uh, they they woke up to find the Alberta Health Services had hired a fencing company, along with the RCMP, which is their uh, their police, um, and um, a, a private security firm had numerous, and when I say numerous, I mean 10 to 20 law enforcement officials that have blocked off the building and have fenced off Grace Life Church in Edmonton. They broke in, changed the locks, chained the doors. They raided the church. Why? Health mandates. Why? Because Grace Life said we will obey God rather than man. Why? Because Grace Life, her elders... And, and her flock have a high view of the church and take obedience, obedience to Christ, his word, and how we are to view the church very, very seriously. So we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters, our family. We'll get to that later. Uh, there at Grace Life Edmonton. But Dr. Coach is right on. What we're seeing today in today's landscape of the evangelical church are the results of what scripture calls there's a famine in the land. And this comes from a passage out of Amos. Amos chapter 8 and verse 11 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And of course, this famine reflects a shortage of spiritual bread. The spiritual well is dry by the Lord's doing, leaving those professing to love Jesus with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul and strength, spiritually famished and experiencing spiritual atrophy. And notice the result uh, of this absolutely emaciated faith in verse 12. People will stagger from sea to sea. And from north, even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Are we not seeing this today? As a result of overly pragmatic and worldly ideologies being brought into the church, when you walk into most churches in this country, you will find a more of an emphasis on the normative than the regulative. You will find that doctrine is the new four-letter word. You have an absence of truth, which leads to an absence of holy living and Christ likeness and true courage. And this isn't purely on the pastors either. You know, I've said this in previous episodes, but if you research the number of followers that, like a Dr. Stephen Lawson, Dr. John MacArthur and Grace to You, Daryl Harris and Virgil Walker, the Just Thinking Podcast, and others in our camp, and you add up their followers on social media, it would pale in comparison to what those people like Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick or Joel Olstein or TD Jakes would have what, what they have individually why is this the case well, we, we have our answers just like with everything else in the word of God Paul's charge to his young son in the faith Timothy uh, it, it clears it up for us why is this the case why do we accumulate? Why are we, why are we so famished? Why are we so emaciated? Why is there, why is there this anemic view of the church? It's because people want their ears tickled. You know, Paul said in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the Ew, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and teaching why well, paul answers that for a t- for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have for themselves w- w- but excuse me but wanting to have their ears tickled They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths why do we have such a low view of church why do we not care about truth anymore and and i'm speaking in very generalized terms look i understand there are churches and ministries out there that, that, that very much do have a very high view on the sufficiency of scripture and truth for crying out loud. I, I run public relations for one of them. I'm, I'm seeking to join membership at another. Why is this happening? Well, because that's what the masses want. This is what the church planning experts quote unquote, that's what they want. It's what the church growth experts want in the various, various committees. This is what they want. Why? sorted game they want to find their ceo ear tickling hireling who will do what they can to keep butts in the seats and the money flowing in all the while not giving a rip that those butts who are funding their businesses not churches in those seats have souls that are on a crash course at breakneck speeds to hear the terrifying words away from me, I never knew you. With that being their goal, of course, they wouldn't have the appropriate view of the importance of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. To them, it's not a church. It's a business. And as the CEO of that business, their job is to make money. And they're raking in the dough. Definitely. Now, what we're seeing today inside certain quote unquote reformed circles and those who would say that they're reformed is that is this, that they there's some who truly hold to the inerrancy of scripture. There are some who truly say they hold to the infallibility of scripture. There are some who say that they hold to the sufficiency of scripture in the life of the church. However, you can't claim that unless you believe in and hold to the sufficiency of scripture In all aspects of life it has to be the highest and the absolute authority in all aspects of life both inside and outside the church so if we're going to have a high view of the church it has to start based on the truth it has to start um with a high view of God, the Father, a high and humbling view of the propitiatory work of God, the son, and, and a high and terrified view of the mighty power of God, the spirit. What we're seeing right now out of the majority of professing evangelicalism is that they have an incredibly low view of God by how they treat his bride you know, and, and and we've said this over the past few episodes, and what we're seeing right now is exactly what Doctor, the late Doctor R.C. Sproul stated after his infamous "What's wrong with you, people?" statement. He said this quote, and it's in it used to be in our, in, in our introduction. The, that's the problem with the Christian Church today. We don't know who God is. You know, I was personally, I was I was arrested by this thought recently. It's alarming to me. The staggering numbers of functioning practical atheists, the, 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 the numbers of practical atheists that exist when it comes to the matter of a right and high and holy and biblical ecclesiology and a right view of the doctrine of Christ being head over his church. You know there there are so many again, like they 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 say they believe the infallibility, inerrancy, sufficiency of Scripture, but then indeed they deny it altogether through their view of the church, and and, and some so many have said through their actions and sinfully so that the church doesn't matter, and to be honest, I don't believe she's that important anyway. Jeffrey Johnson points out in his book, The Church, Her Nature, Authority, Purpose, and Worship, something very similar to what I'm stating. He says this, quote, A church's view of God, man, and salvation has a vital impact on its practices. Theology proper, the doctrine of God, anthropology, the doctrine of man, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, should never be separated in practice. What we believe about God, man, and salvation will consequently influence the way we do church. Having a high view of God and a low view of man, or a low view of God and a high view of man, will determine whether a church is God-centered, theocentric, or man-centered, anthropocentric. In the end, the church's view of God, man, and salvation will reveal whom the church is seeking to please so what 2020 and beyond (laughs) has exposed is that there are a vast number of professing christians and their christian leaders who have shown in word and in deed that they do not believe in or trust in the sufficiency of scripture and of course that's a result of easy believism and pragmatism through again how they view the church there are so many who are willing to fight for religious freedom which opens the doors to all sorts of false idols and false religions and false doctrines and not enough willing to fight for the truth and the glory of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This has been highlighted by the acceptance of false religions, such as critical race theory, being willingly brought into the church by those who insist that it can be used as merely a, quote, analytical tool and beyond, Doing so has joined what is supposed to be the pure bride of the king of kings with ideas and frameworks that can only be described, as Paul did in 1 Timothy 4, as the doctrine of demons. We see this in examples like like J.D. Greer, who, who insists that God only whispers about such egregious sexual sins as homosexuality and that we should, and I quote, fight for the rights of those we disagree with as fiercely as we would support those to whom we agree with, period, close quote. Even when doing so gives hearty approval to the sins of Romans 1. This continues to be highlighted by how seemingly solid pastors and other Christian leaders who, how they were so quick to capitulate when it comes to lockdowns based on health mandates. Those same leaders came to to berate and tear down Dr. John MacArthur and the elders of Grace Community Church when they opened back up last year. And when they stood firm on the sufficiency of Scripture, they didn't back down, nor should they have. You know, you have ministries like Nine Marks, right? NineMarks.org. According to NineMarks.org, here are the nine marks of a healthy church. Ready? One, preaching. Two, biblical theology. Three, the gospel. Four, conversion. Five, evangelism. Six, membership. Seven, discipline. Eight, discipleship. And nine, leadership, to which I say and wholeheartedly agree, amen, and right on. However, Last year, and even a little bit this year, it appeared that Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman and Acts 29 and Matt Chandler had forgotten what is the absolutely necessary for any of these marks to to work, gather, without reservation or restriction. Romans 13 is something that's thrown around so much, and we've talked about this a ton, but Romans 13 says that the government is to be a, a minister for good. When the government stops being a minister for good and is 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 executing mandates that, that go against Scripture's commands based upon lies and based upon a virus that has over a 99% survival rate for all age groups unless you have severe pre-existing conditions, and, 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 and when you capitulate to that, you are stating through your actions that you do not believe scripture is sufficient and you have a damning view of the church. Now, in all fairness, Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks recently penned an article, excellent article, not gathering with the church hurts you spiritually. Amen, brother. Amen. But I would be remiss if I didn't say where was this Last year. So something I want to cover very quickly, and it's something we've covered, we cover a lot on matter of theology, but it's important, and that is the sufficiency of scripture. Psalm 19:7, and I love the way the LSB translates this: the law of Yahweh is perfect restoring the soul perfect in the hebrew there could be translated as complete whole entire or sound you know thomas watson says this till we are above sin we shall not be above scripture so taking that into the consideration i told you it's going to be quick i mean it gets right to the point you cannot refute that Speaking of sin, I I, I want to highlight this because we're not above scripture's commands. Neither is anything else. So just as a reminder, because we all need it. Romans 3 says this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Romans 3, 10 through 18. And that is so very true of all of us apart from Christ. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every person on this planet, every institution, everything is under the subjection of the word of God. Scripture stands above any constitution or any government rule of law. Nothing in the world written by human hands is or ever will be above Scripture. Why? For all have sinned. Why? We are not perfect. And going back to Thomas Watson, until we are above sin, we shall not be above Scripture. We, as the adopted children, especially those who have been truly called to shepherd, in all aspects of every moment of our lives, we should desire to be wholeheartedly regulated by the inspired, inerrant, and absolutely sufficient word of God. That should be our desire. We should want to be what Scripture says we should be in Christ. First John 3, verse 24. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he gave us. Brethren, what we've seen coming from the lips and the actions of so many professing evangelicals over the past year is a big problem. And and we need to be thankful for what we've walked through. Because one of the fruits of of the quote-unquote pandemic, one of the fruits of what we've experienced in, in culture over the last year is a shaking of the trees. And as I stated earlier, this is a battle. It's a battle for truth. It's a battle of trusting in the absolute sufficiency of the perfect word of God. A battle for the glory of God. A battle for the name of God. A battle for the doctrine of his church. And a battle for the lordship of Christ in all things, but especially his church. And the outcome of this battle, and who is truly willing to fight it, will show what we all believe concerning the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and whether or not we will deny his glory in immutable place as the head of the church. So there's a front porch for you. <laughs> and in true Chris fashion, <laughs> there's your introduction. So what I want to do with, with the rest of our time is... Talk about who the church is and whose the church is. And, and that's where I'm going to leave it because over the next uh, little bit, Lord willing, um, uh, we, we're going to have some, some conversations um, around what goes on in, inside the church. Um, so, so l- l- let me, let me, let me s- s- start here. So what, or, or who is the church? Let me, let me start there. So the 19th century Baptist preacher and theologian, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, made this short yet needed statement concerning the church. Are you, are you, are you ready? I mean, if, if you're somebody who takes notes, and sometimes you're like, bro, you read too many quotes or they're too long. <laughs> well, hey, I've got one for you. All right, you ready? Quote, the church is the dearest place on earth, period, close quote. That's Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, quote, the church is the dearest place on earth, period, close quote. He went on to say in a, in a sermon he preached on April 5th, 1891, entitled The Best Donation, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, quote, nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it, If those who are Christ's refrain, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with his people, there would be no visible church, no ordinances maintained, and I fear very little preaching of the gospel, period, close quote. This is how each and every one of the adopted sons and daughters of God should feel about the church. So the first thing I want us to look at is we need to see in the New Testament that the church is the people, and it, not places. It's not a place. It's not a building, but a physical gathering of people in places. Ekklesia translates into called out ones. Okay. It's plural for a reason. It's also translated as assembly, but here's the key. Here's the key. The, the root word in the Greek of ekklesia means belonging to the Lord. So we first see the word church in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 16. And, and, and this is, this is we, we've all heard, if, if we've walked with the Lord for any given period of time, we've all heard this passage of Scripture. This is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18 in the Legacy Standard Bible. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. When Christ is speaking about the church and using the word ecclesia. He is specifically talking about his people, a people for his own possession. That's 1 Peter 2. This is more than just an ordinary assembling of people. Christ builds and owns his church, his body, his bride, his family. Notice the possessive article. I will build my church. And can I just say, as an aside, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, nor fences, nor chains, will be able to overpower it. So contrary to what some elders and some pastors may think, the church does not belong to you. You don't own it. Jesus Christ is the sole proprietor of his church. There was once a pastor who said to Drew and I, and, and we've said this before in the podcast, he said, and I quote, I'm not going to let a podcast tear down everything I have built. Well, having this point of view is dangerous. It's arrogant because it diminishes the very lordship and headship of Christ over his church. And regardless of whether or not someone meant to say that or what they meant to say, then they should have in that moment let their yes be yes and their no be no. But that's a big deal. You should recognize that you don't build a thing. It is Christ and Christ alone who builds his church. The truth is what sets the church apart from country clubs, community events, uh, HOAs, businesses, sports teams, etc. We are his people. We belong to the Lord. He is our king. And, and king is not a word that we're used to using in the United States, as we don't know what it's like to live in a monarchy. But we have been purchased. We have been bought by the, by, the, by the red, royal, redemptive, shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been adopted in, brought into the fold of God. We who are in Christ, we have a flock. We have a people. We have a family. Now, that family is, should be led by a faithful, humble, strong under-shepherd who submits to the chief shepherd, which, of course, is 1 Peter 5. But we're a family. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said. You know, right now, there are people out there like LaCrae and Eric Mason and Jamar Tisby and Anthony Bradley and a whole host of others who have elevated their ethnicity over their citizenship in heaven to where they attack faithful brothers and sisters in Christ simply for standing for truth. This should not be so. We are a family, and this family transcends all other family relationships that we have. Bishop J.C. Ryle said this in his book, Practical Religion. "Quote The family before us consists of real Christians, of all who have the spirit of all the true believers in Christ, of the saints in every age and church and nation and tongue. It includes the blessed company of all faithful people. It is the same as the election of God, the household of faith, the mystical body of Christ, the bride, the living temple, the sheep that never perish, the church of the firstborn, the holy Catholic church. All these expressions are only the family of God under other names, period, close quote. So we're a part of the family. We all have the same father, and we all bear the same name, and we all have one head, one cornerstone, one vine, one chief, one good, and one great shepherd. Let me explain that using the very words of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says this, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ, Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body and for the building up of itself in love. He is the head. We are the body. Colossians chapter one, starting in verse 15. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul says this. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for in him, all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether through thr- thr- thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Wow. That's Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the chief cornerstone. Luke 20, 17 says, But when Jesus looked at them, he said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers or sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We can do nothing apart from him. Again, he is the vine, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, when studying for this, I was taken to the book of Hebrews and, 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 and diving into the specifics relating to Christ and Christ's headship over his church and, I, and I, I found and was arrested by this section in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. It says this, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We, as the church, have one father, one head, one vine. There is one church. And we have been born and bought with a precious price. He was born. Christ himself was born with a mission to save his church. Matthew 121, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He is the author. Christ is the author. Christ is the founder. Christ is the pioneer. Christ is the beginner. Christ is the leader. Acts 3 and Acts 5 say that he is the prince of their salvation. Jesus' name itself encapsulates what he came to do, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The church has been bought with the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just a fancy statement or some sort of evangelical legalese. God gave His Son to die for our sins. Blood was and is required as a consequence of sin. Why? For the wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three starts to tell tells us. We're going to come back to that verse in a second. Romans five twelve. Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned Romans 8:6 for the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace Romans 8:13 for if you are living according to the flesh you must die And remember, we we read it earlier in Romans 3, all have sinned, therefore all die. Therefore, there had to be bloodshed in our place for salvation to take place. We are partakers and benefactors of what Scripture commonly refers to as the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Says this, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse. How much more will that cleanse your conscience of dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where where a covenant is, there must also be the necessity of death of the one who made it. And then skipping down to verse 22, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So I wanted to take our time in in, in reading through that to, to, to truly get and to truly comprehend what a great sacrifice, yes, was made for you individually, but for the church, the son of God, both truly God and truly man shed his blood and purchased his bride. That in and of itself should elevate how we view the bride of Christ and how we approach the commands, the imperatives, found in the scriptures when it comes to the church capitulation to to this worldly culture through pragmatic approaches to church demeans what christ has done and is doing on our behalf not gathering or or placing anything above the gathering of the saints for their edification and for the building up of the body of christ should be something we never desire to do So going back to the thought of Christ being our shepherd, Scripture tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, that he is the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. Three times in the New Testament, we see the Lord Jesus referred to as a shepherd. So uh, the, the, the first place I, I want to I start, of course, is, is, is 1 Peter 5, where he's called the good shepherd. Um, I, I've already talked about Hebrews 13 right? Uh, that, that calls him the, the, the great shepherd, right? That, that, uh, and I'm going to read that verse again, because it was just so, that section again, Hebrews 13, 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, that is it. He is the great shepherd. But there's another place I want to look to to continue to drive this home. And that's John chapter 10. So I'm going to turn there. And and, and grab your Bibles, because I I mean, I, I want you to see this. John chapter 10. Starting in verse one, truly, truly, verily, verily, pay attention, very much so. I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now I want to pause there for a second and, 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 and just say this um, to pastors who may be listening to this. Um, I truly hope that all of you consistently Uh, Remember your calling and the confirmation of that calling because unless the Lord Jesus called you and you walk through the door of that calling, you are a robber and a thief. I'll just leave that there. Verse 3 of John chapter 10, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. That speaks of the Part of that speaks to the importance of the local church and, and being shepherded by a, a pastor who can see you and spend time with you and love you and pour into you and not sit in the back and let someone else do it. Verse 5, a stranger they will never follow, but they will flee from him. Because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what those things were which he had been saying unto them. So I just, I I did just apply some things, by the way. I know Jesus was speaking about something else, but what I said was an aside. (laughs) So we're going to keep going here. This figure of speech, that, verse six again, but Jesus, uh, the figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand which those things which he had been saying to them, verse seven. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Wow. Verse 14 Christ says it again. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, which are not from this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Amen. And right on just going to take a second. (laughs) What an incredible reminder. One shepherd, one flock, one church to whom Christ is the head. And what is the purpose of that church? So here's a question that I truly wonder if the majority of professing evangelicals could answer. What is the ordinary means of grace and the primary instrument the Lord uses for the admonishment, discipleship, and sanctification for believers? I'll repeat the question. What is the ordinary means of grace that and the primary instrument the Lord uses in the admonishment, discipleship, and sanctification of believers? I hope you said the church. Grant Castleberry, writer, evangelist, and a friend, He's a biblical expositor and pastor of Capital Community Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He said this in a tweet on March 3rd, or excuse me, March twelfth, twenty twenty one. Quote: The local church is Christ's plan A for discipleship. Therefore, church membership in a gospel believing, God exalting church is the foundational building block of true discipleship. Period. Close quote. Can he sanctify someone individually? Of course. Nothing is impossible for him. We have the very word of God. However, his primary instrument in doing so, according to the word of God, according to the word of Yahweh, the method and the means for doing so is his body, his bride, the gathering, the assembling of the saints of God. A denial in word Indeed, of the importance and support of the institution and primary means of grace the Lord uses in our growth and our sanctification and Christ likeness is taking his name in vain and demeaning the sacrifice he made with his own blood. There is only one church, and it has an exclusive membership. It's not anything that we can work our way into. It's not anything that we can earn on our own merit, but we are brought in. We are brought near. Ephesians two thirteen says, "By the blood of Christ, we are we are made into in, in, into into one." Uh, again, that, that that's more of Ephesians two. Listen. As an aside, a lot of us know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, right? But, man, that is not where the chapter ends. A lot of people stop at verse 10, but you cannot do that. You need to keep reading. Keep reading. Uh, You know, you have passages like 2.12 that say, Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world, verse 13, but now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has abolished in his flesh, Paul tells us, the enmity, the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances so that in himself he might create the two into one new man making peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having himself put to death, the enmity. There is one church article 27 of the Belgic confession of faith says this quote, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Ghost. The great French reformer and pastor John Calvin, in his, in his magnum opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, said this, quote, The church is called Catholic or universal because there cannot be two or three churches unless Christ be torn asunder which cannot happen, but all the elect are so united in Christ that they are dependent on one head. They also grow together as are the limbs of the body being joined and knit together as are the limbs of the body. They are made truly one since they live together in one faith, hope, and love, and in the same spirit of God. Period. Close quote. Romans 12 verses four and 5, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, an individual in, and individually members of one another. We are bound together. So not only does, does neglecting to gather with the saints, not only does, does does having this low view of church and low view of God rob God of his glory, it also robs the church's ability to be whole and pure. Do you understand that? So I've talked about a lot. Uh, I've, I have. Um, I hope and pray that this has been beneficial. I I hope and pray that it has edified you, uh, maybe admonished and or rebuked you. Um, I I will say that preparing for this um, has driven home for me and, and reminded me and reproved me of the importance of the gathering of the local church. Some of you out there may have said, you know what, Chris, I've just, look, I've been hurt. I've been wronged. Look, I get it. I've been there recently. But as Dr. Josh Bice, uh, my soon-to-be pastor, reminded me, he said this, he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not going to quote, but he said, you know, when you think about family, um, typically in most families, when at least as it should be, if someone hurts one another, you don't just stop being family. So you may have been hurt. You know, you may church hurts a real deal. We've talked about that. Our brother, Josh Loffless and I um, did an episode on that. We've talked about that multiple times and you may have been wronged. And then you may have people that tried to make it right, but it came out wrong. They may say things to like, say things to you, like, Hey, I understand you feel a certain way about how things were handled. I want your forgiveness. That was said to me. That's not apologizing. That's not repentance. And that's not asking for forgiveness. But look, Even if stuff like that has happened to you that's been paid for, that sin has been paid for as much as yours has. So we need to move forward, right? If if that has happened to us, we need to acknowledge that pain, okay? We need to seek after the scriptures and how to deal with that pain, be honest with our leaders and our family, how and what we've experienced And then we need to do, as Paul said in Philippians chapter three, not that I've, excuse me, I'm sorry. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself of having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forget it. Any sin that you've had in your life, that's been repented of, truly repented of, has been nailed to the cross. It's gone. Remove the millstone around your own neck. Anyone that's caused you hurt and harm, forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. Move on. Remove the millstone from around your neck. And reach, reaching forward to what lies ahead. You know, and Paul's talking about reaching forward there in Philippians. I mean, it's, a, it's the picture of a straining as a, as a runner is straining with everything he has. I mean, it's, it's a picture of, 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 of using every single muscle you can to reach for the goal. And verse 14, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. And he has said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And he commands us to gather with our family and to have a high and a holy and a a pure view of his church. Well, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Matter of Theology. We'll see you on the next one.